If you like small town mystery, crazy news, and wild history, then the Florida Men on Florida Man podcast is for you. Each week, Josh Mills and Wayne McCarty bring you the absolute best Florida has to offer. So if you're looking for a show that's safe for the family, but funny enough to help you escape everyday life, then listen to the Florida Men on Florida Man podcast. That's Florida Men, plural, on Florida Man podcast. fundamentalist it's good to have everyone back but most of all who it's great to have back is my co-host troy welcome troy how you going i'm good brian i'm really good i'm a little bit nervous about this episode though i have to admit but i'm good it's an interesting episode i think with some good good stories along the way but also an important point i think in your journey because there's quite a a few things that that come up which our listeners will hear soon that really were turning points, I think, in your life. And these were, you know, during this time, I mean, we stayed in contact, not not overly often, but I definitely had the odd email with you. I mean, this is the early noughties, isn't it? Late 90s, early noughties or whatever it was. And Yeah, pretty much. We're looking at sort of 99 to 2000 and something-ish. Yeah, and we, we, we weren't really doing Skype back then too much. I do remember Skyping you from there. I remember it, you know, being very blurred and pixelated around this point. But anyway, we get we are going to get into some of those stories. And look, I just want to recognise from the start that I think there's some really some tricky things for you to navigate in this episode. And it, I'm sure that revisiting some of these will be a bit traumatic. So I just want to acknowledge that up front. So be kind to yourself as you tell the stories. And I appreciate that because it is going to be intense. We're we're picking up from episodes 63 and 64, which we called Troy Story and Troy Story 2. Thought about calling this Troy Story 3, but I'm thinking I'm more about that sort of SEO, you know, getting this sort of placed. So I think I want to call this, and, you know, by the time you see this, the, the title may be different, but Troy deals with his religious trauma, I think would just be a good way. To, to title this episode, because even though that's what was happening, I had no idea that's what was happening. Absolutely no idea. It's, uh, it's all too often, isn't it? How often do we talk about when we're catching up in the pod and going, hey, this was happening, but I only know it was happening in retrospect. You've got no idea while you're going through it. So at least hopefully by telling this story, maybe some of our listeners are going through some of this and they recognise that and go, oh, that's where I'm at. And I think we do that a lot with the podcast, hope that people connect in with some of the stories and really benefit from our looking back on it and only knowing what we know now that we wish we knew back then. And I do think, Brian, that people that are deconstructing now and deconverting now can actually look at this and go, oh, this is another trajectory, right? And I don't recommend it to anyone, but it is totally another trajectory. And so perhaps people can resonate a bit with it. And also, I hope that this episode will make, for for some people that maybe aren't coping too well with their deconstruction and their deconversion and their religious trauma, 
this will help you feel a little bit better about yourself. On that note, should we kick off with Troy deals with his religious trauma? Yeah, yeah, let's let's deal with my religious trauma. <laughs> Interestingly enough, this this term didn't exist, religious trauma. It wasn't just that I didn't know what was going on. Nobody was using this term either. So we need to keep that in mind that this was this was a different time. You know, it's nearly 25 years ago, which is a quarter century, right? That's how long ago this was. I agree. I think back then it was known as general head fuckery. Yeah, it was just called running away, is what it was probably <laughs> called. So, look, we we left off with the Troy story and Troy story two. I, I did, I did definitely tell that I went to Korea, that I left Australia, and I, I talked about that. So please go back and have a listen to those two episodes if you want, because they do lead into this. And I think the value again is for people that have followed our stories, this is going to make perfect sense. But I, I wonder if people that haven't followed our stories that are new to the pod might be thinking, what the hell? We do invite you to go back and look at our stories. And I think that's basically what we've subtitled a lot of these is our stories, part one, our stories, part two, etc. I was finishing my degree at Monash, Monash University in religion and theology. So it's a secular university that I was doing that. And when I was there, I was exposed to a lot of people of different Christian faiths who were doing this degree because it still had a Christian flavor, even though it wasn't, you know, an evangelical degree. And so that had exposed me to the idea of people seeing different versions. And and I was completely out of church. You know, I was like, I don't want to go. I don't want to have anything to do with this as I was leaving. I found out about teaching English in Japan. Uh, A friend of mine at who was actually in Students for Christ at Monash, had said to me, you can go to Japan and teach English. And I'm like, what? And they'll pay you. She goes, they'll even pay for your flights. And I'm like, okay. And I'm thinking, wow, Japanese girls, right? And also like Japanese food. This would be absolutely brilliant. I had no idea what I was getting myself into. So I started looking around and there was gigs in Hong Kong, gigs in Japan, gigs in Korea, gigs in China, other places as well. For some reason or other, I think there was a much stronger appetite for English teachers at that stage in Korea. Korea was not what it is today. There was no global K-pop sensation. You know, we didn't all know what Korean barbecue was or kimchi was, etc. As a matter of fact, Lin, my girlfriend at the time, was telling me about kimchi and I was like, oh, okay, that doesn't sound very good. She's like, no, it's not very good. Anyway, turned out it was quite okay. But I was I was still in a lot of pain and I think I was looking to flee. I was basically looking to run away from the pain, l- looking to run away in a lot of ways from myself. I think in a lot of ways I was acting on impulse and reflex to the pain, which was not good. I wasn't really stopping and being self-aware and really addressing my pain. I was just trying to stop the hurt, trying to stop the pain. And this is the breakdown of my marriage and the breakdown of my religion, basically. I started drinking heavily. This is even before I left for Korea. And probably for the next 15 years or so, I would say I drank really heavily. And, you know, we joke now that Troy doesn't drink and that's why really, because it became a a super crutch for me. 
I lent really heavily on self-numbing behaviors and maladaptive coping strategies, alcohol, sex. I can't say I was treating people very well. Whether I was sleeping with a girl or dating a girl, it was, I wasn't looking for a relationship. I was just looking for whatever I could get out of that, out of that relationship. You were, you were Tinder pre-Tinder. I was Tinder pre-Tinder. It was lots of swiping, lots of swiping. I felt extremely isolated, extremely isolated because I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to connect with people from church, especially if they were deeply embedded in it. And yet that was my community. So it's that stuff we hear about all the time, Brian. You know, I, I walked away, I was out, but I was completely alone and I was completely isolated. I'd made some drinking friends that I was hanging out with, but it was quite shallow and no one was talking about their pain, let alone my pain. And if I did try to share that I was in some sort of anguish, they would sort of brush it to the side and, you know, let's get drunk. I can remember I saw one of the great big AOG pastors in Westfield Shopping Town, you know, in in a shopping centre. He had heard that I had split with with my wife and just the judgment. It was full on, you know, and he even brought it up. He's like, oh, oh, you've left her, have you? Oh, you know, and it was just, it was anguish. And so my need to run was, to me, that's a symbolic thing, you know, that I needed to get away from these people. I need to get away from the, from the judgment. And, and I was also trying to run away from my pain. And obviously you can't run away from what's going on inside you, but I tried. It, it's interesting, these, these points, isn't it? Around this point of time, you've got, you've run into a pastor, you've gone through what is, you know, quite a traumatic time for, for many, divorcing, and their response is judgment, not pastoral care, not let's talk about it, do you need some support? Because they really focus on that behavior it's like we've we've spoken about before you know people who might be using drugs or you know take an accidental overdose it's not hey let's bring them in and let's look after them it's oh they're not part of us because the behavior they're exhibiting isn't what we appreciate or want for our group so all of a sudden you're just cast out it's it's fucked it's it's that point where so many times many of our listeners many of people in a facebook group it's the same thing. You get dead aired and you just get judged. That's right. And the, the Church of Christ wasn't a whole lot better. You know, we talk about this Church of Christ, which looked very liberal, but actually was extremely evangelical under the surface. I think if I had gone to them and said, I am in absolute agony from this divorce, I think they would have done their best to help me. But I didn't do that because I just thought they were judging me because of their theology around divorce. And I think there was some truth to that. I don't think they would have been anywhere near as harsh as the great big AOG pastor, of course, but I didn't trust them to go to them and ask for help, but they didn't reach out with help either. You know, I just started to disappear from church and they just kind of let me go, which right or wrong, that's what happened. Remember I told you about my two really good friends, John and Paul sound like members of the Beatles, but Paul was my my best friend at the time. 
especially in the church context. You know, we had done the church plant together. We we're at the Inner City Church of Christ together. He wasn't always comfortable with the Inner City Church of Christ. I think he thought it was a bit too liberal. But he was freaking out that I was falling apart, that my world, you know, my religious world. I mean, I had been the leader, the religious spiritual leader in the friendship, and I was completely falling apart. And so he was freaking out. But to his benefit and to the benefit of one of the pastors from that inner city Church of Christ, they both came to see me off at the airport when I was leaving for Korea. So I'd, I'd, I'd got a job teaching and living in Korea. I had no idea what I was in for, but I was off. I was out. And, you know, I was probably hung over on the plane, to be honest. But, but you were off to the heartland of where David Yongicho, or he may have been Paul Yongicho at the time, I'm not sure. Surely that was a, a coming home. Trigger, trigger, trigger. Yeah, well, I'll get to that because, of course, there, I did cross paths with his church, if not with him. So my friend, my very good friend, Jacko, who had been one of the cult busters, he was still a fundamentalist Christian, but he had been to Korea and done this. So he'd given me some advice. And I know he was looking down his nose at me in a lot of ways thinking, you've fallen off the Christian wagon. But he did help me set up in Seoul and what I needed to get and gave me maps and talked to me about, you know, where to get the food and all this kind of stuff. And he, he was great. But I got to Korea and when I arrived, man, you thought I was lonely and isolated before I left Australia. At least I had people that I could reach out to. At least I had drinking buddies. I got to Korea and as I arrived, I, was, I got into this room in this house that I was sort of put in because, you know, they provided housing. And it was, look, even by Korean standards at the time, it was pretty bad. I can just remember this intense loneliness. It was it was almost unbearable. I was just so alone. And I could, and it was tangible. Were you questioning your decision at this time? Oh, totally. Kind of, yeah. Totally. What have I done? Almost right away. Korea then wasn't what it is now. So there was no knowledge, as I said, for me to say, this is what Korea is about. And, you know, I'm going to get right into this K-pop band. No, it was all extremely foreign. It was a very different Asian culture to what I was expecting because I'd been to Thailand. I'd been to Singapore numerous times in our city that we lived in, Brian. We had a lot of Asian immigration from Southeast Asia. So, you know, we knew the food, you know, we knew the different hockey and noodles and we knew, you know, different luxes and we knew chicken rice and we knew all this sort of Southeast Asian stuff. So when I got there, and this is the naivety, and I can say this, you know, in full judgment of myself after having lived there for 12 years now, I forgot that Asia was a continent and not a country. I was expecting Asia was going to be Malaysia because Malaysia was truly Asia. Do you remember the ad? <laughs> Turns out, no. Malaysia is not truly Asia. Malaysia is just a part of Asia. And so it was very different. There was no laksa and there was no Singapore noodles and everything was in Korean. And I didn't speak or read Korean. Well, they don't even have the, how can you? The Romanization of the, yeah, the Romanization or the Anglicization of the language. No, very, very little anyway. And especially then it might be different now. So I got into the job pretty much 
right away. They they needed me to start right away. They were short on teachers, which wasn't a good sign because that means people had left. In, was introduced to the other teachers that were there. Lots of Americans and Canadians in those days over in Korea because the Koreans loved the Americans and loved the American accent and Canadians were a cheaper version of that. So there was a lot of Americans, a lot of Canadians. And so the the Irish, the South Africans, even the British, the Australians, the New Zealanders, we were tier two in terms of the way that the Koreans looked at us. We were foreigners, as they called them, but we weren't top tier. So we didn't necessarily get the choicest jobs and the best schools and all that kind of stuff. That really went to the Americans and the Canadians first. What? Why didn't you play the card that you had lived in America? You should have. You should have just played that card and been a top. And put on an American accent. Yeah, I think I did. Good at the time because I think Jacko had talked me up on that point. And what happens when you get there though is you start teaching in an American accent right away or very soon. Then what happens with that is you're in an American accent all day every day. You start being in an American accent outside of work as well and pretty soon even you know the the kiwis the aussies the south africans the irish we all start to develop this american tinge to the way that we speak and it's not put on it's actually i mean it is put on in the sense that you're doing that for work but it becomes part of who you are so we get that sort of greg norman softish american sort of tinge twang to to the way that we talk but there was a very tight English teacher community in the suburb or in the part of town. I was in a place called Nowongu, which is in the northeast of Seoul. And there were people from all different schools that we would all get together in the pubs and bars of No One on weeknights and on the weekend. So it became a very tight group of people. And in some sense, and when, once I connected into that, Brian, you can understand it was like church. You had this group of people thrown together. We all had not very much in common except for the fact that we had this in common and everyone was really open to each other. Everyone was in the same point of need that they needed friends. You certainly had some people that had been there longer who didn't need friends as much, but they became the sage, wise, long-term people that could actually tell us what to do, where to go, how to find this, how to find that. And we called them lifers. Oh, he's a lifer because he had been there for however many years or she had been there for however many years and they had no intention of ever leaving. And they would talk about, oh, yeah, I came during the, you know, the first economic crisis and blah, 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 and it was like this and it was like that. I didn't see myself that way. I did not see that I was going to be a lifer. Later on, though, I did. Later on, I was like, okay, this is me. This is who I am and I'm going to stay here for the rest of my life or at least in Asia. There was a, an idea that started floating around later on that we sort of understood. I didn't see it this way at the time, but this was still true at the time. Anyone who's seen the American Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas special knows that Rudolph goes to the island of misfit toys. And it's kind of a bit like Pinocchio as well, that he finds this island where all the toys that are broken and all the toys that have got something wrong with them have been rejected they go to this island and they live there and they have this happy little life. That's what Korea was. 
It was the island of misfit toys. I was totally on the run from life and saying, look at all these people on the run from life. Glad I'm not like them. Everybody was doing that. We were all in some way on the run from life. You would get the odd, the occasional person that would come in and, you know, they were balanced and together. They'd do six months or a year and then they'd leave and go back to their lives. But there was the group of us that were there ongoing for a lot longer. And yeah, it was the island of misfit toys. I was living with the daily guilt of leaving my marriage. And I told you, I fair enough believed that I could leave someone had given me sort of permission to do so, but my theology wasn't there. So I was still really guilty about leaving my marriage. I was also really guilty about hurting her because I knew that this had really hurt her and she didn't want the marriage to end. I felt like absolute shit. So I was carrying those two levels of guilt. And then there was also the daily guilt of having left church because I still called myself a Christian. And yet I was not living up to these values. I was not living up to these behavioral norms. I was drinking, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll lifestyle. And I had this crushing guilt as well as the religious trauma, which, God, I I never would have been able to put my finger on. That's what it was. But I can't stress enough to those that are leaving or have left recently that are dealing with this guilt. I know exactly how you feel. And I felt exactly like you do. So during this time, you've left your marriage, left the country. Have you had any contact with your ex-wife? You're talking about the guilt. You've got the guilt that you've heard of, the guilt that you've left the marriage. Had you had any contact during this period? Yeah, I would check in from time to time. I would email her. Uh, Occasionally we'd chat on MSN Messenger or whatever it was back in those days. We, I would occasionally call her on the phone to check in and see how she was. And it was funny because she was having trauma dreams about me and she'd be like, oh, it's interesting, call. I had a dream about you the other night. So she was she was having these, you know, these horrible dreams and, and I just felt shit. I really did. And I wasn't ringing her and telling her, oh, it's great. I'm so glad. You know, I was genuinely just checking in to make sure that she was okay because I just felt like shit for, for doing what I'd, what I'd done. And that's important because there was a turning point around that a little bit later on. I met a guy in um, Korea. His name was John Paul. And John Paul was, he, he was Canadian. He was one of the longer teachers at the Hagwon. That's what, that's what we call these English schools. They're called Hagwon in Korean. He was one of the longer teachers at the Hagwon. He had just left his marriage and come to Korea as well. So I was able to connect with him around that, but he had never been religious and he was, you know, hardcore atheist. And, you know, if it had been the days of Richard Dawkins and stuff, he would be celebrating them. In fact, he did later on, but I was able to connect with him and he sort of took me under his wing in a lot of ways because he was a real sort of shepherd leader style character in, in the friendship group. I also met another friend of mine named Aaron who had been a born again Christian very briefly in New Zealand. So he got me, if not my pain, because I don't think he'd gone through any sort of religious trauma, but he knew the context that I'd come from. And so we would talk about things, you know, occasionally we'd talk about church and I remember this, remember that. He was right into photography and introduced me to a sort of a deeper level of photography. So we bought 35 mil cameras, high-end, really expensive cameras, and that became one of the things that we did 
on the weekends we would go out and we would take photos throughout Korea, you know, as if we were sort of tourists. It was cool. It was really, really good. I want to stress, we were all drinking heavily. This whole gang that I connected with, there were there were groups of people at work who weren't heavy drinkers, but that wasn't who I was connecting with. I was connecting with the heavy drinkers. And so we drank five to six nights a week. It's interesting that you gravitated to that though. I mean, you obviously, whether consciously or subconsciously, knew that you needed not only that connection, but something to help you numb that pain that you were experiencing. Gravitate's probably the right word. I just immediately picked up where I'd left off, having left Australia, which was drinking heavily. And so I connected with the heavy drinkers. That was just the way it went. We would go to the local bars sort of, you know, Monday to Thursday. And then Friday and Saturday, we'd start in the local bars and then we'd go downtown to a place called Itaewon. Um, there was another place called Hongdae, which was more sort of university crowd, meaning the the students themselves, the Koreans. And then Itaewon was full of expats, but it was largely American GIs because there were local GI bases. And so it was pretty rough. It was pretty tough. And you could get your head kicked in pretty easily in Itaewon. There was a lot of really bad stuff that went down. But if you knew how to navigate it, it was it was good. So we we did connect with Itaewon. You know, we'd we'd maybe start in No One, then Hongdae, and then lastly at Itaewon. So in some sort of way, you know, what you're describing is young guys dream to a certain degree. Out drinking most nights, you're single, you're having a bit of fun. Surely, you know, deep down you're having a bit of fun and you're enjoying it and it wasn't all pain. Well, of course, it was numbing the pain. If it wasn't numbing the pain, then I wouldn't be, wouldn't be using it, would I? So totally. In a lot of ways too, I was, I think, again, like I did when I left the Revival Centre, making up for lost time. And I think you're like a spring, you know, like a, a slinky that gets tied up really tight and that's what that sort of high control group does. And when you break that string, boing, oing, 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 you know, the, the, the slinky goes wild and then eventually settles. And, and I think that's pretty much what I was, what I was doing, but I can't stress enough that I was trying to numb the pain because I was in a lot of agony. So yeah, I was having a great time and I was, I I was thinking about this when I was planning for this episode, that there were times when Aaron and I would just have an absolute hoot and the shit we would get up to, you know, it was, it was hilarious and it was, it was a lot of fun. But I just think the use of sex and the use of use of booze was not good for me and was not good for the people that I was partying with. And the other thing too is we weren't getting paid a lot, right? So I was living paycheck to paycheck and the majority of my money was going to the bars and the clubs. I was spending 200 US dollars, and this is in the 90s, 200 US dollars a night on those weekend nights out. Certainly not the Monday to Friday or the Monday to Thursday ones, but the Saturday, easily. That's, easily. that's pretty significant. It's, it's significant even in these days. Yeah, it was, it was definitely too much. As I said before, everyone was a fish out of water in these groups, so it was easy to connect very quickly, and it was exactly what I needed. So in some ways, real needs were being authentically met. Turns out I'm not so bad with languages. 
And so I picked up the language faster than most. I'm not saying I became fluent in Korean. I certainly didn't. Um, and I didn't study Korean either. But I learned to speak and read informally and quite quickly. And Aaron was actually quite good with languages as well. So we And he, he spoke other languages. So he was coaching me in some ways. John Paul was absolutely shit uh, with languages. But I was, I was picking it up quite quick. I was speaking to the kids in my class often in Korean. I was speaking to people out and about in Korean. I learned what I call pub Korean. So I learned how to say ashtray, which I think was chetori. I learned to say beer, you know, all the different names of drinks, cigarettes, dambe, dambe juseo, give me some cigarettes. Learn to bow. Koreans bow everywhere. You bow in 7-Eleven, man. You bow everywhere. And I connected really quite quickly to the language and to a lot of the culture in some senses, but it was learn or starve. If you didn't learn how to say the food. And I can remember I got my bravery up, I guess, to actually order Domino's pizza over the phone. And I got on the phone to Domino's and the guy says, you know, and starts talking to me in Korean. And I said to him, and I'm not even going to try because I've forgotten more Korean than I ever learned. But I said to him, hello, I'm a foreigner and I don't speak, this is in Korean, and I don't speak Korean very well. I'd like to order a pizza, please. And then I ordered the pizza that I wanted and it was all going really well. I was really proud of myself. And then he goes, and I'm like, what? No idea. So I had to ring my Korean friend and say, could you ring Domino's no one and ask them what they said, right? And so she she rang Domino's, rings me back and says, he wants to know if you want salad. I was like, fucking, I don't want salad. Fucking Domino's, right? Completely, I was screwed by salad. But that was the kind of stuff I was doing. And, and I saw it as a code to be decoded. Yeah, it turned out I was okay with languages. And that really served me better in China when I started learning Chinese. Well, yeah, it is one thing. You're, you're very good with accents and impersonations and things like that. So it probably goes hand in hand. Yeah, well, it's interesting because people would say that to me. Your pronunciation is great because I would listen to them and I would imitate them. Yeah, totally. I mean, I've been out to restaurants with you, uh, Chinese restaurants here, and you've spoken a bit of Mandarin and they quite a take a head check to see. Yeah, yeah. what's this white guy doing? Yeah, it's, it's one thing to be doing that in China. It's another thing to do in Australia. And I do it on, on purpose. It just makes me feel good. <laughs> Absolutely. Totally. I'd do it. Yeah. If I could do it, I'd do it. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I had learned to say things like "nanun hoju saramimnida," which is "I am Australian person," you know, things like that. And I'd, I'd learned how to taxi Korean, so I learned how to say "orenjok wenjok," you know, turn left, turn right, um, which is difficult for me because I have trouble with my left and right in English, let alone then translating that into into Korean. But anyway, there was a thing called the PC bunk, which means the PC room, right? So the computer room. Not everyone in Korea at that stage necessarily had a computer or could afford a computer, or it was a lot of young people that wanted to go and play with their friends. And so there was these big PC cafes, these big internet cafes, and they called it the PC bung. And we spent a shitload of time in PC bungs because our houses were really shit and it was really difficult for us to, you know, we didn't, we, this is the days before real laptops and carting a laptop around, etc. And we didn't have them provided and the computers at, at work anyway. And, and there was a whole culture of PC bung and, and internet gaming. It was Starcraft, which was Starcraft. 
was the big deal. Stack up to. I'd say PC Bung would possibly the place you called me from a couple of times. Oh, totally it was, yes. Yeah. yeah, that's where we'd go. And you'd put your headphones on and, and off you'd go and you'd, you'd disappear into games for hours at a time, but also watching movies and, you know, I don't know if it was YouTube then, but, you know, video clips and reading the, the newspaper websites. It, there was no iPads. There was no smartphones. This is where you'd go to get your dose of, of home. Because there was limited pop culture in Korea at that stage, at least Western pop culture, that we could access. We had cable TV and quite literally when I got the cable TV connected, a guy came to my house, opened my window and stuck a cable through the window and then the window didn't close after that point and then I plugged that into the back of my television. That was cable TV in my neighbourhood in Panghangdong in Korea in the in the late 90s. I'm pretty sure he patched that in from your neighbours and just passed it through your window. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I know, I know what you're thinking, but no, he was definitely from the cable company because we were paying a fee. Yeah, China, different story. But, but at that stage in Korea, yeah. But we had f- the French Fashion Channel. We had French MTV coming through. We had CNN International. And that was kind of it. So remember how I told you earlier I was bathing in pop culture? I had immersed myself in All of a sudden that was cut off. So I had to go to the PC bung to sort of tap into things, but it wasn't the same. We also had video bung, which is a, a video room where you could go and watch videos. And there was also video VHS rental places. DVD bung came a little bit later. But it was hard to get movies, hard to get TV. Um, and it's hard to get to the movies. So the video bung is where a lot of Koreans go to lose their virginity. So you get this little room, you know, you can lock the door and you watch a movie. And actually a lot of Koreans would go there and lose their virginity. So it seemed very strange to the Koreans when two white Anglo males would come and want to get a room in a video bung because we wanted to see the movies, right, in a sort of a movie environment because it would be a big screen with great sound and all that kind of thing. But they thought we were in there probably fingering each other. Right? It's, <laughs> it's like a Korean drive-in. It's, it's great. Totally. That's exactly what it was, yeah. And that, look, they had Korean love motels as well, which is where Korean kids would go and lose their virginity. When foreigners would go with their girlfriends to – those hotels, sometimes the cops would come and try and interrupt them because they don't want the Korean girls being corrupted by the by the Americans. And we were all miguk saram, which is Americans. That's what we were called. We weren't, and they, they loved, hated America, still do. So when they called you Americans, we would often, often stop them and say, miguk saram anyeyo hoju saram imnida, which is like, no, no, I'm not, I'm not American, I'm Australian. And then they'd be like, oh, and then they'd love, hate you less because they didn't really care. Because of the American GI presence, there was a free-to-air American army or American military channel that we got called AFKN, AFKN, which is the Armed Forces Korea Network. So we'd watch that. JP, in John Paul, in his house, he had a different cable provider, and every night at 11 p.m., Friends was on in English on some random channel. I don't know how they found it. So we would often rock up to JP's house at 11 o'clock, either before the pub or after the pub, and watch one episode of Friends and all just sort of go, ah, Friends. Because we could go and get movies from the video store, but you could, but in those days you couldn't get TV shows. A little piece of home. 
Oh, totally. So we were starved for what brought us comfort and we would often connect with, connect with each other. So every day though, having said that was an adventure, you'd walk out the door and you didn't know what was fucking coming. Food was hard because I didn't know how to order the food. I didn't know what the food was. And a lot of us did. We started to connect more with the American fast food places in Korea because that was easy. You, you could go up, you could point to the pictures, but I started to put on weight because I'm also on Prozac still at this stage, which is notorious for putting on weight. And so I'm eating a lot of junk food. I'm eating a lot of Domino's. I'm eating a lot of McDonald's. And it's not because the Korean food was so bad. It was just, it's not like here where it's in English. If it's in, if the menu's in Korean, you're fucked. And the menu is in Korean. So unless you had a Korean person ordering for you until you got the Korean language skills up, which didn't come right away, you know, that was months down the track. So I started to put on a lot of weight quite quickly. The foreign novelty status with the women was there. So I had white guy status, what we called white guy status, that it's not that they necessarily looked up to you as being white. You were just, it was a novelty thing for them. So I was picking up women much easier than the Korean men were picking up the women. It's not that the women were were easy to pick up. It's just you had a novelty status with some of them. And some of them had, you know, a white guy fetish. And I'm sorry if that's really un-PC to say, but that was the reality at the time and that was the way that we saw it. Not, not to mention you were a misfit toy. Everyone loves to play with a misfit toy. Yeah, that's right. We were, we were just fucking head cases and it was probably quite obvious to see. Sex, booze, partying, complete distraction and self-numbing. Hey, I'm Rachel. A few years ago, I stepped away from my religious background. I had a lot of anger and a lot to say about evangelicalism and all the shitty parts of it. So I started a podcast to work through it and to feel less alone. A year into it, I asked my cousin-in-law to join the journey. And I said, yes, I'm Molly, co-host to the show. Turns out we had a lot more in common than just being in the same family. We were both raised in evangelical house churches in the 90s and 2000s. Talk about culty. We were homeschooled, culty. And we both left religion behind about eight years ago. So now we get together every other week and talk about the nitty gritty that happens when you leave religion. Everything from how to set healthy boundaries with religious family members, theology, hell, heaven, Paul, and how to recognize and heal from religious trauma. This podcast is our healing process, and we're hopeful that sharing our stories, other people's stories, and what we learn along the way may help others heal too. Religion leaves a mark on everyone it touches. Sometimes that mark isn't always positive. Cheers to Leaving is the perfect podcast for anyone who's questioning their faith or looking to connect with others who have been there. You can find our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So grab a drink and join us as we say, cheers to leaving. Like all good podcasts, we've got merch. Yes, we do. We've got t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, and all kinds of great exvangelical and I was a teenage fundamentalist branded gear. I don't know about you, Brian, but I wear mine proudly. I do wear mine proudly. And to get it, I went to redbubble.com and searched for Teenage Fundy. That's redbubble.com and search for Teenage Fundy. Or see the Linktree URL in the show notes. All proceeds go towards building and promoting the podcast. Hashtag fucking blessed. (laughs) We worked in the afternoons because we were an after-school 
Academy and after school hug one. So that's what I meant about going out every night and then sleeping till sort of 12, one, getting showered and dressed and then going to work, getting ready for your lessons and then teaching and then finishing at about nine or eight, depending. And then you would take off again. So that was just rinse, repeat. That was the cycle. Um, so it lent itself to a, a night of debauchery and drinking. I remember I started dating this girl and some of the people that I was working with were saying uh, she could be a prostitute. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, she could be a prostitute because I was telling them about her and everything. And I guess some of the indicators. And they said, if she tells you she is an art student, that is the line that prostitutes will say that that's what they do. So no one wonders about their job and that kind of thing. So anyway, of course, I learned how to say, what do you do for a job? And she said she was an art student. So it turned out I was probably dating a hooker at one stage. Never paid her for anything, but yeah, because welcome to the island of misfit toys, I guess. Um, I gave my ring, my wedding ring one night, really drunk. I just pulled it out of my pocket. I wasn't wearing it and just gave it to some girl, you know, possibly a, an art student. It's you know. interesting how you carrying it around in your pocket what was that about actually no you know what i was wearing it on a different finger uh, i was wearing it on a different finger because yeah there was it is interesting now that you say that there was something that i wasn't quite willing to let go of and yet one night i did do you think it was a conscious decision you were making or you were totally. just like yeah yep. it was yep yep i was like here have this and i think i was holding on to it as well because it was it was one of those Russian wedding rings with three different types of gold. It was, it was worth something, you know, it was worth hundreds of dollars if I, if I'd wanted to sell it. No, but I gave it away. I had heard very little from my Christian friends and the inner city church of Christ people. If I didn't reach out to them, I heard nothing from them. Zero. Some people would email back. If I emailed them, some people wouldn't even do that. So it was pretty much dead air from from my Christian friends. And that really surprised me. Yeah, I mean, it probably did at the time. But again, in retrospect, you it's what you see over and over and over. People get dead air. They're too hard. They're not part of the group anymore. See you later. That's right. But I thought my relationships were deeper than that. I thought I had genuine friendships with a lot of these people. There was one person in particular... Uh, her name was Marion, and she would write back to me. She has since deconstructed, and we've sort of compared stories, and she was totally on a deconstruction journey herself at the time. And so she was happy to connect with me because we had something in common, I guess. And just a, a shout-out to Marion because we know she listens. So hi, Marion. She does, yeah, yeah, yeah. She's, she's now a fan. That really bugged me, and especially when I'd write to the pastors and the leaders of the church. And I can remember Caro saying that, you know, she just heard nothing from people that even officially sent her out. I mean, this church had done no such thing. They would write back with one line, two line. And it, it was just obvious to me that they weren't interested in me, Bron. They didn't care. Or if they did, they certainly didn't show it. You would have challenged them in some sort of way though. That's at the heart of it. I mean, people within that bubble, I mean, we've spoken about this bubble so many times they don't really know how to interact with people outside of that bubble, let alone somebody who's been in it and made a conscious choice to leave it. Because I, I think they see it as rejection, not just rejection of, of Jesus, but rejection of them 
as a, a community, what, what have we done wrong? I mean, we did everything right. And I don't think it's a, a really a, a part of self-reflection. I mean, you don't see churches very often going, oh, how do we actually treat people better? It's The whole conversation is about how do we get more people in? Like, it's not about how do we give a shit about people? So I think at the core, and, and I'm generalising, but at, at the core, this is what churches do. Um, it's all about getting numbers, not giving a shit about people. That's right. And and there's a social contract within joining church. We know it is supra conditional, right? If you want to be a part of this community, this is what you do. And a part of that is, you know, regular attendance and all these kinds of things. And so I wasn't doing any of that. I was in fucking Korea, sex and drugs and rock and roll. And I wasn't hiding that either. I would write back to people and say, you know, this is what I did on the weekend. And I started a blog. I started a blog which was called Kimchi Squirts. <laughs> and uh, sadly, it actually, when, when, Geo, when GeoCities got taken down, which was a, an old, older version of, you know, Blogspot or whatever, it actually got lost, which is a shame because it was good. And I had Korean Americans following the blog just laughing at me because I would be really quite open and this is what I struggle with today and here's what happened and they loved it because they could see you know the Korean culture and they could see this poor white person thrown into you know the reverse of them and their families kind of thing yeah so I I had a little bit of a fan base and people would write to me you know I found your blog and yeah so yeah I had this blog that I would chronicle things and I was quite quite open and quite honest about the shit that went on Uh, look I I remember because we would email occasionally, you and I. And I, I remember some of the emails you, you sent. And I'm like, he's trying to shock me. Like, he's trying to shock me, absolutely. And a, as you know, you you know me well enough to – I'm not shocked easily, pretty rarely, particularly um, with the, the career. I mean, I, I've seen it all. But, um, yeah, I, I would see it. No, I, I knew where you were at was just like, He's really trying to piss me off. He was trying to antagonise me. He was like, oh, I'm not going to buy it. And for what it's worth, that email probably went out to about 45 other people. No. No, mine were personal. Oh, yeah, they were. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you didn't know about BCC back then. I can remember leaving voice messages for people who I was super close to in church, even though we went to different churches. Dead air. Nothing. I think they couldn't deal with my divorce. And they couldn't deal with the fact that I had walked away. And that was so crushing. It really was. That really hurt me. Because like, what is this, the fucking revival center? I was really angry that they were holy ghosting me. Well, in true Asian terms, same, same, but different. Same, same, but different. Yeah. But this wasn't Thailand. Korea was full of churches and Buddhist temples. And they coexisted. And the the Buddhists were not full of demons, it turned out. Right? And the Korean Christians didn't think that their Buddhist neighbors were full of demons. (gasps) Even the tongue-talking ones. (gasps) Because they were Koreans. And they were not less than the Christians. They were Koreans first. They didn't have the truth. They didn't have the truth. Well, they didn't have the truth, but they but they were still they still had dignity and respect. And that was something that really blew me away, Brian, because Korea was, you know, Yongi Cho land and the center of everything. And yet they did not treat people of other faiths discriminately. It's interesting. And some of that's obviously because they've coexisted for forever and a day. And, and 
as you said, though, they're Koreans first and religion second. The thing that did blow me away is, you know, the Buddhist symbol is like a backwards swastika. Actually, the Nazis is the backwards swastika. It's the, the Buddhists had it first. But they were everywhere. And so you're just walking around Korea and it's just swastikas everywhere, you know, and it's like, oh, we're not in Elstonwick. This is really full on. Yeah, I remember the first time I went to, to Asia and seeing the backward swastika, well, actually, as you said, the swastika everywhere. I was looking going, what the fuck? What, the Nazis came here? Yeah, right, because we were naive. Exactly right. So, look, you asked me before about Paul David Yongi Cho. His church was was huge, and there were people in my school who actually went to his church. But it was interesting being immersed in Korean culture and seeing what made David Yongi Cho tick. For example, Korea had been uh, colonised by Japan twice in in the 20th century they hated the japanese despised the japanese right and they didn't they they didn't hide it and so when david yongi cho talks about you know satan has his throne in japan and gives all his biblical reasons why satan has his throne in japan nah dude you're korean of course satan has his throne in japan or the idea of you know when the bible talks about treat people like uh, treat your the women like mothers and the and the younger women like sisters you get to Korea and you see that's exactly what they do culturally. That's how they live. And you can understand, oh, there's actual cultural reasons, Middle Eastern cultural reasons that are also here in Asia for that. And I was seeing a lot of this kind of stuff. And of course, nobody does a cult like Korea, as we've already learned through our um, episode with, you know, talking about the Moonies. And so I was seeing a, a lot of extreme religion around me in Korea and realizing this is why Pentecostalism boomed here because the the ground was fertile. The fields are white under harvest, brother, in, in Korea. So I met this girl named Hayong. I talked about her in, in our last episode, my last story episode. I'm, I'm going to say it up front. I'm pretty sure Hayong was cheating on me the whole time. Right? Talk about the Island of Misfit Toys, right? But I was a serial monogamist because I was a Christian. So if I got into a relationship with someone, that was it. I stopped sleeping around and I did. So I hooked up with Hayong and I should have known by the fact that I took her home one night when she was dating someone else. I had another boyfriend. That was pretty good indicated that that's what she was going to do to me. I didn't look for that. I'm very trusting right? That was, that was me. And we'd been together for not even quite a year or maybe a year. And so I started thinking, well, it's time to marry Hale because I was a Christian and that's what you do. That's right. That you, it's a responsible thing to do. Yeah. Old habits die hard, right? And so I'm thinking it's time to get married. In Korean culture, that's at least then, that's kind of what you did as well. I didn't know this at the time, but I'm dating this girl who obviously has her own issues and she's off sleeping around and then I'm thinking about marrying her. I reached out to the pastor, the female pastor of the Church of Christ and said, pretty serious and everything, what do you think? And to her credit, she came back and said, no, don't. And at that point, I realized that I didn't want her advice anyway, right? Anyway, I didn't marry Hayong. But it was interesting to think that we're at this stage, you know, we've been we've been dating for however many weeks now. Isn't it time to get married? So I was still carrying this shit, Brian. And, and because Korean culture is a, a little bit 
different to, to Western culture in the way that even within Christian circles, they don't necessarily frown as heavily upon sex before marriage, do they? Well, they do, but it still happens. It's rampant. Yeah. You know, like I told you, there's stuff going on in the in the video bung and the and the love motels and all that for sure. So it, it, it was definitely frowned on. It was definitely a big deal, yet I don't think the consequences were as high if you don't get caught. So a lot of, a lot of men had mistresses in Korea as well. Not as bad as Singapore, yeah. but certainly they had them. So I talked to you before about working in the Hug One, and the Hug One was the English Academy. I was at the English Friends Academy is what it was called. And we were just another resource to the owners of the hug ones. So it was like, you know, I'm going to open, I used to say, we're going to open a hug one. We need books. We need tables. We need chairs. We need white people. We need paint for the walls. We, you know, that's, that's how we were. We were just purely a resource. Um, there was no labor legislation that we had access to, to protect ourselves with, etc. We were not being treated a whole lot better than the Bangladeshi laborers in the factories. Actually, that's not true. We'll probably be treated a lot better, but certainly nothing like we were used to at home. So we're exploited. We were treated terribly. There was just, there was no job satisfaction. It was just very rote kind of teaching and it was yucky. So the the dream was to move to a university, right? You go and work at a university as an English teacher. I hunted around for a job you know, I only had my Bible college degree. I'm doing all, you need a degree to be able to do all this. I only had a Bible college degree and I had just got my grad dip from Monash that had, that had come through. So I started reaching out to some of these different universities and they would often want people with a master's in teaching English as a second language, but occasionally they, they'd get needy and, and you'd be lucky and you'd get in. So I did. And I got in, Brian, at Seoul Women's University. <laughs> yes, this sounds like a recipe for disaster. And it, it turns out Seoul Women's University is a Presbyterian women's university. It's a fundamentalist Christian women's university. And I had no idea that it was going to be what it was. Yet, like any Christian school here, you've got a lot of people that go there just because it's a good school, not because they're necessarily Christian. And you've got a lot of staff that are there that aren't necessarily Christian and especially the foreign staff, you know, very few of us were Christian. So we were sort of cut off from, from that. And also remembering that Seoul or Korea is such a huge drinking culture. I don't know if you know this, but everybody, especially back then, everybody drank. And so even the Christians drank themselves stupid. Right. And I can remember there was this, like like a retreat for the women's university for some some faculty and it was the it was the students and they were quite literally loading up the bus with boxes and boxes of spirits and beer and this is an official women's presbyterian women's university <laughs> event so yeah it was there was a lot of drinking that went on both expat and local but the thing about getting this job at this women's university was it was isolated. It was further out of town. There was no uh, no cable TV. The internet was limited only to the offices, not to our accommodation, which was on campus. We were extremely isolated. And so whilst the job was way better and, and, and excellent, or maybe not excellent, but way better, the payoff was I was isolated from all my friends and not everyone was big drinkers. 
in this group. And so I was spending a lot of money on taxis going to and from no one to drink with my friends. And so that was biting into my money as well, even though I got a pay rise getting a job at this women's university. By this stage, and this is sort of six months, seven months into my time in Korea, I, I got out of the contract, went to work at the university. I'm on the antidepressants. I'm the side of a house, huge, really, really fat. I think that was because I didn't understand that it was actually the medication that was doing it, as well as the fact that I was leaning too heavily on the, you know, the fast food. And, and six nights a week of drinking. Of drinking, yeah, exactly. So yeah, I was I was really quite big, and and I'm going to put some photos of this time into the Facebook group and show people, you know, what was going on. So you know, sort of give you some visuals. And I've got one photo in particular where I'm just, uh, it's like, hi, I'm Carl Sanderlands. It's pretty big. Remember, I told you about my friend Paul, right? Who was falling apart. I would occasionally get in touch with him and tell him what I was doing and, you know, the shock value. But it wasn't just about shocking people. It was about here's who I am now. Here's what I'm doing. Are you going to accept me? That That's a lot, what a lot of it was as well. And he had seen my divorce. He had seen the pain that I'd gone through. And one night we're on the phone and I said something about the divorce and he goes, oh, well, God forgives all sin. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And he said, you know, it's not the end of the world. God can forgive you for, for the sin of divorce and everything. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what? Because he had seen that I was almost suicidal. And yet he's sitting there telling me, in essence, you shouldn't have left. But now that you have, God will forgive you. I was just like, fuck you. Right. And, and I didn't say that to him but because he was my friend. But I was just like, what are you talking? And I was hostile. What are you talking about? What do you mean? didn't you see what I went through? And I hung up the phone and just thought, fuck you. Not only are these people not connecting with me and not caring and all this, and, and he was to his benefit, but now if I'm going to be his friend, I have to repent of my sin of divorce and no. Nah. That's that's crazy. And I, I know your relationship with Paul, you know, over the time, I mean, it, it was, you were close. You wouldn't expect that from someone who's meant to be your friend, regardless of where you're at in life. And the fact that he, that those comments hurt me so much showed that I hadn't even close come to a point of resolution on divorce because my theology, I didn't have a leg to stand on according to my own theology. I should have stayed there and suffered and been miserable for the rest of my life and got a reward in heaven. So rather. At, at this point, you're still identifying as a Christian, yeah? Yeah, but... It, I didn't tell anybody, but on the inside, yeah, I'm a Christian and, you know, God grant me your grace because look at all these sins that I'm committing on a regular basis. You know, I wasn't murdering anyone or bowing down to idols or uh, no. stealing, oh, but, but I was... It, it was enough to get you kicked out of church for six months if you did it. Oh, yeah, if, if you're in the Revival Center. Yeah, yeah for that's sure. right. For life in the Revival Center. That's right. Six months at a great big AOG. But were you, like you're saying internally you're a Christian, were you praying? Were you... Like, oh, God, no. 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 And and when I would talk to people who were in, you know, Yongi Cho's church or other churches, I would just, you know, I, I never got into the discussion with them. Or anything like that. No, I mean I'd talk to Aaron because he'd been a born again Christian, and we'd sort of you know compare stories a little bit. But yeah, no, mostly it was all parked, Brian. 
and I guess that's one of the things in this story is that I had parked my religion and I wasn't dealing with it until things like that would happen. Paul judges the shit out of me. But interestingly, towards the end of my time in Korea, I did come to some sort of peace in deciding that the divorce was in fact the right thing for me. I think I'd given myself enough space, enough room, enough emotional and mental space. And I came to this conclusion and I, it was, I was conscious of it. Yes, it was the right thing to do better than killing myself. And maybe it's not great. And I feel shit about what I did to my then wife having left her and hurt her, but it was the right thing to do for myself. Interestingly, when that happened, and I, I really was conscious of it, the following weekend, I'm in the cab with John Paul and Aaron and, and other, other guys, we're all heading downtown, or maybe not the following weekend, but quite soon after. And John Paul says, you've really changed of late, Troy. There's something different about you. And I'm like, well, brother, that's because I've found the Lord. No. And I, and I was like, what do you mean? And they said, well, you're just not as intense. You're not as driven. You know, you're always the one, come on, let's go, let's go drinking, let's go. You've you've settled. And I was like, yeah, because John Paul had divorced as well. I said, funny enough, JP, here's why. And I shared what, it, what I'd gone through. And I had forgiven myself. And I had also said to myself that this was actually more than forgiven myself. This was the right thing to do. And that's such a huge thing. Like I know we've spoken about this before and I've certainly come to those pivotal points in my life too where you're going, why aren't I getting over this? Because you, you're constantly self-flagellating. It, it's over and over. You just beat yourself up. I think that point of forgiving yourself is such an incredibly important point throughout your life. You, you've got to be able to do that. I didn't realise I needed to do that. It was sort of a natural organic healing that came and I forgave myself. I think I stumbled over, is it John Gray, Men Are From Mars, Women Are From Venus? Yeah. I think I stumbled over his book on divorce in a in a bookshop in Korea, in English, of course, and uh, I think it was called Mars and Venus Starting Over. I'm not saying that all the advice was great or anything like that, but it gave me a framework and helped me to understand how I was responding to divorce. And he was saying that a lot of men will actually replace the woman right away, which is exactly what I did, but they're not ready for a relationship. And then later they'll end up hurting that next person because they think they're in a serious relationship when actually they're not. And I think that's why I broke up with Hayong. I think I read that book and realized this isn't fair to her. Anyway, it turned out she wasn't playing fair anyway. So it wasn't the end of the world. Being in a dysfunctional relationship is okay because you're both dysfunctional and neither of you are gonna are gonna last anyway. And it's you know it's just a it's a it's an island to stop over in while you while you heal kind of thing. And so I found some resolution from the divorce. Another thing I want to point out, which is fun, is that because you know I used to do acting as a kid and you know performance and drama and all that kind of thing was was a thing. I got some work on Korean dramas. This is before Korean dramas were what they are today, but I got speaking roles on Korean dramas with very famous Korean actors at the time. Speaking Korean or English? No, speaking English, yeah. Uh -huh. Wow. Yeah, because we were the token white people in, in the scene or whatever. So that was cool. So I can honestly say I have been on Korean dramas, never saw them. I'd, I'd record them and then I didn't know how to find what episode I was on, what time, whatever. It got paid the whole bit. You know, it was cool. And I look back now, I think if I'd been in a healthier place, 
I could have pursued that, got out of the English teaching and done that full time because, you know, I, I was, I was 23 years younger. I was pretty, it, it would have, it could have been something um, because there were others in that space. I would have probably had to get much better at my Korean. The other thing that I did was I went on a K-pop TV show and I co-hosted a segment with a uh, with a K-pop pop star at the time. I don't remember. The thing is back then, K-pop to us was just an annoyance right? when we were there, right? Because it was just like, that's Korea. We live in an expat bubble. And so you'd hear the K-pop stuff and, and there's certain songs you'd get to know. And I've got a few CD collections of Korean, Korean pop from that time that as music that I, uh, it's sentimental, right? But it hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. It's, it was exactly the same as it was 25 years ago. Yeah, I went on this Korean pop TV show and did the top 10 countdown with this, you know, Korean pop star and stuff like that. And it was, it was fun. And it was that white guy novelty status. I was trading off that as well. It wasn't huge, but it was, it was a bit and it was fun. Yeah, that would have been great. And then you didn't pursue it. You just kept drinking. I just kept drinking. I just kept writing myself off. There was a couple of times, let's speak in code, there was a couple of times where I'd walk out of pubs in Korea at 7am with pupils the size of, of hubcaps. That was happening from time to time, but it was 99.9%. It was, it was booze for sure. Yeah. Another thing I, I, I did skip over was the Revival Centre discussion board, which was the AMU board, which is uh, revival.amu.com. I'd, I'd originally started that, but that was now being run by someone else. Towards the end of my time in Korea, I started re-engaging with that a little bit. Someone came on there and had a go at me about my divorce as well and really crushed me. And I swore at him, you know, fuck you, you know, because you never did this, you know, when I was in that scene, you know, you never swore. And I was like, fuck you, blah, blah, blah. And they completely wrote me off. And all my credibility and everything in that sort of ex-revival center world, because they were all still Christians, completely collapsed. And I just walked away from that as well. And I think that's important to note that I had nothing to do with the, with the ex-revival center cult stuff. I had nothing to do with church, nothing to do with the AOG, nothing to do with the churches of Christ. It was pretty much all over. I'd come back to visit you know, every, every year I had a, a ticket home that was part of my contract and I would occasionally catch up with sort of Christian friends, but it became less and less and less to the point where my world was pretty much not anything to do with Christians anymore. So did you feel like you were, you were closed in or did you feel like your world was opening up again? How was that isolation? What was happening for you during that time? I wasn't isolated anymore. I had my community in Korea. Um, and that was much broader, people from all over the world, people with, you know, but genuinely, you know, we used to sing all over the world, people just like us and never, never met any of them. This was different. I was really meeting people from all over the world that were, were very much like me in the sense that, you know, we were westernized, not always Caucasian, but, you know, westernized English teachers in Korea and, you know, the, the Canadians, the Americans, the, the Irish, the South Africans, there's so we have so much in common, more than more than we have that that sort of divides us or makes us different. But I got to the point, Brian, where I was looking for more out of life. I'd actually toned down my drinking a little bit. I won't say it was much, but I toned down my drinking a little bit, and I wanted to get out of Korea. I looked at the lifers and I went, I don't want to be a lifer, at least not here. Maybe I'll go to Hong Kong. Maybe I'll go to Singapore, maybe I'll go to Malaysia or something like that and, and start again there. 
I started looking for a job in Singapore. Zero response from all the traditional places that ESL teachers look for jobs. Um, I found out later on it's because they really want you to be on the ground and apply for the jobs and, you know, you're more likely to get it in Singapore that way. But I didn't know that. But a friend of mine in the university where I was working, he had a friend who was working in Singapore who was leaving. And he said, let me speak to my friend. And, and I ended up getting his job at a place called NYU Language Center, which had nothing to do with New York University. It was just called NYU Language Center. I wanted to try and forge a career. So I thought I'll do the ESL, the English second language teaching thing. I'll get over to Singapore and then I'll start to look for another job. I'll get out of, get out of ESL. And I wanted more than just hiding out in Korea. And I had loved my times in Singapore. I'd done some traveling around in Singapore um, and I'd always had such a great time. It was such a glamorous place, you know, world city, much like Hong Kong, but cleaner. It was far less wild west, but it was still radically different enough that I thought I'm going to have a great time. And, and the culture stress, you know, I haven't really gone on too much about the culture stress. The culture stress in Korea was something that you had to deal with. And, you know, you could get really negative and bitter and spiral at times about the culture. And I thought it's, it's not going to be like that so much in Singapore. So I got myself a job in Singapore and decided I was going to take off. As much as I would love to keep going and telling you the stories about Singapore, because there were some really cool things that happened there and more deconversion, more deconstruction, more dealing with my religious trauma. But I might just put a pin in this one now. And let's deal with this in Troy Story 4. Yeah, I think that'd be a good idea because I, I am familiar with some of those times in Singapore and I agree there's some some great stories to tell there, but also I think some of those maybe not quite epiphany moments, but certainly pivotal points in in your journey and um, meeting people that... Yeah, I mean, I'm going to tell some stories about being in the apartment of senior leadership of MTV Asia. Friends of mine hanging out with Robbie Williams when he's touring or Donatella Versace and it became extremely glamorous. I'm not saying I was connected to those people. I was, you know, one degree of separation away, but these were the people I was hanging out with. These were the parties I was going to. It got really intense and it got quite dangerous, to be honest. It's a good story. Absolutely. And interesting to listen to but we really hope people get something out of it and it helps them along their way. Looking forward in the not-too-distant future in unpacking the next point of Singapore. If you'd like to connect with the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast, then please see the links in our link tree in the show notes. We invite you to pop across to our very vibrant listener community on Facebook, which is a private group, and we're also on Instagram, Twitter, and Reddit. Also, a huge thank you to Lucy, who manages our social strategy, and to Kerry and Bree, who manage our Facebook listener group. All of our episodes are transcribed to increase accessibility, and the I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and pretty much wherever you get your podcasts. It's produced and hosted by Brian McDowell and Troy Waller, with all sound production and editing done by Troy Waller. You can find all these links in our link tree in the show notes. 